This is the Pendulum Land Podcast. Welcome, infrastructure junkies, to our show. This is a podcast created by right-of-way professionals for right-of-way professionals. I'm Dave Arnold, and with me is Kristen Bennett. We are your go-to source for the best information within the right-of-way industry. We are your primary source of news, trends, and developments in eminent domain, right-of-way acquisition, and the Uniform Relocation Act. Today, you are not going to want to miss this. You think COVID has shut everything down? It sure shut me down. I've continued approximately 20 jury trials since COVID hit because they're simply not hearing civil cases in person. Last episode, we talked to California eminent domain attorney Brad Kuhn, and Brad's not trying any cases in California, but not so fast. Our good friends Matt Hansen and Tara O'Hanlon from the law firm of Miller, Nash, Graham, and Dunn, LLP. They're eminent domain attorneys based in Seattle, Washington. And Matt and Tara have tried not one, but two jury trials since COVID. Well, how'd they pull that off? Good question. The first jury trial was in person, and they were socially distanced between the jury, the judge, and the witness. Okay. The second trial, though, is the one that really blows my mind. In that second trial, there was $7.5 million at stake meaning Matt and Tara's evidence of value was $7.5 million lower than the landowner's evidence of value. That's a significant figure. Yeah, it's a couple dollars, wouldn't you say? (laughs) But that's not even the interesting part. The interesting part was, drum roll please, Matt and Tara tried the entire case via Zoom. Hold up. So you're talking about $7.5 million on the line. Seven and a half million. And they do this trial via Zoom? Via Zoom for the first time. Oh, I'm I'm assuming that's not normal. No, ma'am. No, it's not. I've been a trial lawyer for almost 30 years, and this is making my stomach hurt. Well, I'm going to need to hear a lot more about this. How did they do it? How did it work? What happened to the seven and a half million dollars at stake? We're about to find out today. Today's episode of the Pendulum Land Podcast is brought to you in part by Pendulum Land Services. You know how right-of-way projects seem to always get delayed or go over budget due to condemnation and relocation issues? Well, Pendulum Land Services has the unique ability to identify and solve potential challenges before they arise. In fact, their projects are managed by experienced attorneys and relocation experts who are also the principals of Pendulum Land Services. Check them out at PendulumLand.com. PendulumLand.com. Many of you probably know Matt Hansen from the National Eminent Domain Conference. In fact, Dave, I think you met him in New Orleans at that event. Is that right? Yeah, that was back in 2014. Nice. So Matt is a partner for Miller, Nash, Graham, and Dunn based in Seattle, Washington. He's also the leader of their condemnation and real estate valuation team and... Since 2013, Matt has been named as a Washington super lawyer every single year. Nice. Right? So Matt is also a past president of the Puget Sound chapter of the International Right-of-Way Association, and he's a prior chair 
to that association's International Ethics Committee. Matt, we're glad you're here. We sure are. And Tara O'Hanlon is also a partner at Miller, Nash, Graham, and Dunn in Seattle. And I had the pleasure of meeting Tara at the 2019 IRWA International Conference in Portland, Oregon. Tara did her undergraduate work at Boston College and went to law school at Georgetown. Now, those are a couple of fine schools with words, wouldn't you say, Kristen? Wow. Yeah. Tara focuses her practice on construction litigation and condemnation, where she represents and advises municipal agencies. She publishes, she presents, and she's a great trial lawyer, and we are thrilled to have her here with us today. So Matt and Tara, you're both in Seattle right now, and before we get into this episode, I want to reveal something in the interest of full disclosure, and it's this, that Kristen Bennett and I have only one thing in common, and that is Pearl Jam from Seattle is our favorite band in the world. So the question is, being from Seattle, do you guys know any of the members of Pearl Jam? No. I do not. But you're like super fans, right? Just from the proximity alone, right? I am not. <laughs> yeah, I, they've been around a while. That's all I know. Oh boy, this this episode just got kind of weird. Yeah, what are, what are we going to do with all our Pearl Jam trivia? Yeah, we're going to do some Pearl Jam trivia today. You know, it's too late to rewrite our bits, so we're going with it. Yeah, we're we're just we're going to roll through this, guys. So, listen, we have um, we understand that that you all have tried not one but two jury trials since COVID hit. And I understand the first one was actually in person and socially distanced. And the second one was via Zoom. So let's let's break this down a little bit. And let's talk about the first jury trial, which was actually in person and socially distanced. How, how did that work? Well, it was partially in person. Partially, okay. partially. what parts were not in person? Actually, some of it was uh, over Zoom. The majority of our witnesses testified over Zoom on a huge projector screen in the courtroom. Wow. So the witnesses were over Zoom. So the witnesses did not come to the courthouse? Well, some did and some didn't. Depending on the witness, you know, type of testimony that was being provided, you know, it was a trial decision as to whether or not we wanted them to testify via Zoom or in person. And whose decision? It was you could decide whether or not they came to the courthouse? Well, it was a joint decision between the expert and us to the extent that the expert didn't feel comfortable coming in due to some precondition or something like that, we wouldn't force them to come in. And and ultimately, we just left it to their decision whether or not they wanted to come in or, or stay remote. Wow. Well, uh, what about the actual jurors? They, they had to come to the courthouse, right? Eventually. <laughs> but, so was jury selection done in person? No, no. It wasn't. How, was that over, over Zoom? It was over Zoom. Jury selection over Zoom. And ultimately, the feedback from the jurors and the court is that that's here to stay, even as trials go back to being in person. Oh, wow. So that's one of those COVID things that is now permanent, that we just, it's the new normal. What, right. as, as an attorney in jury selection, I would think that you really like to get a good look at your potential jurors and kind of sniff them out in person. Was there, was it hard to do that when you're when you're on Zoom? I actually thought it was better. Um, we had an extensive questionnaire process that the juror, potential jurors answered in advance. It was way more information than we'd ever received under the traditional way of doing it. And ultimately, you know, we we saw them up close and personal in their natural surroundings at home. Most of them. 
some of them were in cars, some were walking through the grocery store, shopping. Uh, yeah, it was interesting, uh, to say the least. And we have some, uh, some memories about that first time. Uh, oh it was my. new to everybody, and there was a lot of learning along the way. So do, do all jurors, I mean, do all citizens have access to Internet and Zoom and the connectivity required to participate? Do, don't you run the risk of, of excluding certain people from the process? Well, I think the court takes its role very seriously, and they, they vetted that, and they looked at opportunities of how can we get participation, in, you know, an important process uh, in this current situation that we find ourselves. So they had to be creative. Uh, and ultimately, I think to answer your question, Dave, uh, we got some of the biggest, you know, return on, you know, jury summonses that the, the jurisdiction's ever seen. Uh, and those that didn't have the technology or the inability to, to participate in that process, uh, they would get notice from the court that they could come in and do in-person voir dire and maybe a different case, different trial. So, so what you're, you're saying, I'm sorry, Tara, but what you're saying uh-huh. is that you actually had better turnout from the jury pool over Zoom than the old way of doing it in person? Yeah, we did. I mean, it's, there's, there's lots of technology out there today. You know, most people have internet. Most people have a home computer with a camera. Most people have adopted to this way of life. I mean, children are going to school doing the same thing. So technology is here to stay. And I think that's the message. And I suspect that uh, this will spread, you know, as it, it rolls out in other jurisdictions. Uh, Terry, you were going about to for, say Yeah, going forward for the people who don't have that access, we expect the courts to look at as cheap and efficient a way as possible to get them, you know, mobile hotspots, one use phones or laptops to make that increase the access as much as possible going forward. That's amazing. As somebody who's had jury duty only a couple times, I love the idea of being able to do it like from my house on my phone, on my computer and not sitting in a room for eight hours with a book I don't even want to read. <laughs> this is this yeah. sounds like a much better plan. Oh, oh I yeah. Love it. I mean, some jurors, you know, when we when we were doing the remote trials and we got to spend a lot more time with them and everybody was on Zoom, including the court, people were taking the calls from I mean they were they were online as a juror in their house, in their couch. You know, I wouldn't be surprised in your pajamas in some instances. Wow. Uh, we had what we had one juror that laid in his bed the entire time with his arm up behind his head with his <laughs> I don't know. It must have been like an iPad or something cradled in his in his lap. Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's that's pretty much how I like to record podcasts, like laying in bed, just chilling, just chilling. Okay. But sure, but let's go. Let, let's focus a little bit on the in person, socially distanced trial, because I, I've tried a bunch of juries, like like you all have, and generally we, as the condemning authority, are at the table closest to the jury. And then if you look straight ahead, there's the judge, and to the left or the right of the judge is the witness chair, and the jury is like in this galley off of either the left or the right of us, right? And they're all sitting together. So you didn't try the case in a courtroom, isn't that right? We did not. We tried it in a convention center that the court has been renting out. Okay, so they just kind of recreated a courtroom in a convention center, or how did they even do that? Exactly. They put a lot of work into reimagining the courtroom setup, but in a huge convention center room with the jury, socially distanced, six 
feet apart in their own individual chair. And ultimately, the court really was seeking the attorney feedback on how this was going to be set up. Initially, when we showed up, uh, one set of counsel was going to have their back to the jury just because of spacing. And counsel were able to agree with each other that we would kind of do an angled uh, table setup so that we would have equal view dead on to the jury. Well, wow. Uh, you know, and to be clear, it doesn't really matter because with such distance, I mean, you're, you start spreading out jurors every six feet, you know, and then by the time you get to the back, you're almost at a hundred feet away. And so, and it's tough when you're, you're sitting because when you're doing witnesses that are over zoom, you're sitting in a chair, just like we are now having a conversation with the witness, but you don't really get to see the jury in those situations where if you had a live witness, there's breaks in between, you can kind of look, but looking up from your laptop, looking at the jury, I think just would look funny. So, I mean, there's some, some awkward opportunities, but there's some good opportunities too. The, the way that the jury was set up, we got a lot of uh, leeway to kind of move around the court because we had to project our voices longer distance. So we got to get kind of close up to the jury and you could move around, which I found helpful as, as a trial lawyer, you like to kind of think on your feet, you're kind of moving, you're having that discussion versus being pinned to a chair trying to be persuasive with respect to any particular piece of evidence. Well, now he, he says that, but he didn't have any of the remote witnesses in that trial. His witness was in person. I had to sit with the jury looking at me, staring into my computer like I'm doing now, talking to the witness who is projected on the big screen. Oh, my goodness. Well, and I, that's amazing. I, I would assume... That with what you guys do, nonverbal communication is a huge part of this, both like your nonverbal communication to the jury and being able to react and read their nonverbal communication. And I'm assuming that this in-person socially distanced case was all, everybody's wearing a mask, right? Was that a detriment to what you guys were trying to do to not be able to see their faces and for them to not be able to see your full face? Absolutely. With respect to being able to read the jury. I mean, they with the mask and the distance, and how spread apart they were, you would have to almost turn to see everybody. You couldn't see everybody at once. Um, and ultimately, we decided to wear clear masks, clear plastic masks, so that we could see the jury. What? Or so, the jury could see or, you. Sorry, the jury could see us. Yeah, that, so why? Well, as Christine mentioned, you know, part of what we do is 90% of what we do is nonverbal. And, you know, I think when, when you're trying to be persuasive, a lot of it is trust. And trust starts with being able to see somebody's face in a lot of regards and see expressions and humanize public agency or, or, or this property owner in a way that, that makes it less clinical. Well, so in did, a very clinical environment. No kidding. So did opposing counsel also wear clear masks? Or did you guys have that advantage? They did not. Um, the jury ultimately gave us feedback at the end of trial that they really appreciated the clear mask. They, they thought it was an advantage. And I actually knew one of the counsel who tried a subsequent case with the same judge as who, uh, the judge that presided over our trial. And that judge told both sets of counsel to wear clear masks oh. based on kudos so you guys are you guys are setting trends hello just like well, people from the pacific northwest they're always setting the trends just, grunge music just like, like pearl jam Starbucks. hey wait 
Should we do our first Pearl Jam trivia question? I think we should. Okay, guys, are you ready? You big Pearl Jam non-fans, here's your first Pearl Jam trivia question. I'll just give you a hint that there are five options, five options of a, a correct answer on this question, and here it is. Name one human being who has served as the drummer for Pearl Jam. I'm, I'm hearing crickets so far. I, I don't know. I have no idea. What? Okay, well. well uh, oh, like, uh, oh, God. Two of them are named Matt. Two of them are named Dave. So you could have just like pulled one of those names. Matt Cameron is the current drummer. We've had Jack Irons. Yeah. Uh, Dave Abruziz, Dave Krusen, and Matt Chamberlain. So, so like there's a Matt and a Dave on this podcast. They could have. Right. See, like you guys, Matt and Dave, could probably be drummers for Pearl Jam just because you're named Matt and Dave. And Good job. You probably should just move out of Seattle. This is embarrassing. It is so, kind of embarrassing. Okay. Back to the socially distanced in-person jury trial. The jurors didn't wear clear masks. And I, and I know for a fact that we, it's funny, when we try a case, we don't want to make the jury uncomfortable, but we were trying to read their nonverbal communication to see whether they're picking up what we're putting down. And so we kind of look over at the corner of our eyes or, or we'll bring an associate to sit in the gallery to watch them. Well, heck, even if you're looking at them in person, you can't see, you can see whether they're rolling their eyes, but you can't see their mouth. How could you read them to determine feedback during your case in chief? Well, I mean, there's still nodding of heads. That's usually a pretty good sign. And, you know, and you start to get an eye for it without, I mean, they're not shaking their heads. I mean, that would be inappropriate, but you can tell when people are starting to get it. Uh, you can tell because they start to lean in a little bit. Leaning in for sure. Um, you know, and there's there's other tells whether or not they're accurate. I've done this enough that I'm always surprised uh, in the post jury interview, you know, as to what we thought was hitting and you know what the jury told us was hitting uh, with respect to, to evidence that was important to the overall verdict. Right now, how, how about your how about when you called witnesses? Um, I understand that not some of the witnesses were live and some were remote. How'd that work? Well, a lot of the fluff witnesses up front that the second chair handles, we just kept those remote. Uh, and then when the first chair comes in, you, you know, you gotta have the expert witness, you know, in the chair looking the juries in the eyes. Neither those witnesses nor <laughs> second chair would appreciate the commentary. <laughs> However. <laughs> Uh, I know Matt's talking about himself as second chair, no doubt, no doubt. Mm. But did you make a strategic decision whether to bring, say, your chief appraiser, who's going to be your, you know, bat and cleanup? Did you make a strategic decision and tell him or her, hey, we really need you to come down to the convention center to 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 testify? We did, and you know, this this expert had had done quite a bit of work for this particular project, so he had some other appraisals out there that were going to come to light and. Uh, and we weren't running from them, but we had to get that evidence out there. So it was important to have him in person when I cross-examined him in my direct uh, to get all those ghosts out of the closet and, and demonstrate what this is about. And, and I think that was helpful. So that was a technical, strategic decision that we made in this particular case. But if you're looking at experts, if, if they can be in person, I think it's advantageous. T totally. He also wore the clear mask the expert did so you got your witnesses to wear clear masks as well same mask just like a suit and tie so you well, would take off your same, mask the, and no, hand no, it to the witness no no same uh, brand same got you know, it. We, we bought a box of them we're a little we're a little <laughs> slow out on the east coast okay well you know uh 
yeah, I, I can't believe how many mask try-ons I got to see before trials to see if they match their shoes because this is a big moment. <laughs> and I said, clear, ma- clear masks match everything. So here you go. Take a couple. Interesting. Did you get any feedback or pushback from your uh, witnesses as to, hey, I, it's COVID out there and I don't want to show up in person? Or, or did they pretty much readily do what you asked them to do? We, we certainly were, you know, very candid with them that whatever they want to do is it's ultimately their health and their decision um and you know that that was a question about how the jury would take that you know would the jury appreciate that we aren't bringing five more people in and out of the courtroom or would they resent it because they were there and these witnesses got to be at home um and and i think Frankly, it was kind of a mixed bag on both sides when we uh, interviewed the jury after trial. You know, that, that that raises a great point, Tara. I hadn't even thought of that, is you run the risk of unintentionally and indirectly offending a juror by bringing your witness into the room with them. And you can't or tell. Or by leaving them out. Or by leaving them out. So what do you do? You go with your best strategy and find out how it hits and learn from it. But I don't know. I mean, it's... It, it all depends on the, the current environment as well. I think this was this trial was at the very beginning of the scale, the, you know, the COVID, and a lot of people didn't know what was going on, and so we were trying. We were we were pretty sensitive to that fact, and we, you know, we really appreciated the jurors' participation in a case that really couldn't go forward without them there. So I have I have one more question, and and only answer this if you're comfortable doing so. That first trial, socially distanced, in person, about how much money was at stake? What was the amount in controversy? Uh, well, we were at about, uh, it was about $700,000 between our number and their number. They were at a, a million dollars, rounded even. We did the uh, Austin Powers, <laughs> one million dollars was our little, uh, oh, oh, we had a poster of it up in the room. <laughs> one and million dollars. And everybody start laughing. <laughs> That's not so much money anymore. Oh, one well, billion dollars. There, there was one point in trial where I turned to opposing counsel and uh, you did, did not. Sign. You did you the did doc- not. Dr. Evil he, pinky to the mouth. Yeah, well, we, it's we, actually better because the day before, uh, the night before opening statements and, and Tara's doing the opening and so opposing counsel sends a, a slide saying hey I'm going to use this in opening and then what we did is we sent the, the Dr. Evil photo back to him and said one million dollars <laughs> just about how convenient that their case landed exactly at one million dollars kind of the theme see if we had known this in advance and we had done our research this would have been an Austin Powers themed episode and not Pearl Jam. But we just assumed you were Pearl I mean, Jam they're fans. They're in Seattle, they're Dave. In Seattle. It's what like the heck? I live in Seattle so I don't drink Starbucks. And I live in Seattle. I don't know who anything about Eddie Vedder. What? But, but you know what for a little color commentary, they're on the Zooms and neither of them are wearing flannel or Doc Martens or anything. Yeah. What? We we just go our own way out here, you know. You sure do. We've been watching that on the news. So for, <laughs> the first one the first one about only about $700,000 at issue. Oh. And you well, relatively, you know. Yeah, no, only I say only. only. That's still quite a bit of money, even in 2021. And you were forced to do something that we haven't done in Virginia. I mean, we and we talked to Brad Coon, 
from Orange County, California, hidden trying cases, and you're going in there playing roulette almost with someone else's money because it's not the way you were trained. You weren't trained to do this socially distant, distanced in some sort of convention hall. And I, I'm still trying to get my head around it. Well, I, I think we just tried to do the basics of what we always try and do, you know, let our witnesses explain what they did and help help answer the jurors questions and get to the right result. So I'll ask you this, the first trial socially distanced and in person, $700,000 give or take in controversy. Were you happy or sad about the result? Extremely happy. You know, we, in, in, at least in this jurisdiction, we have to make pre-trial offers and, and that's what they, they base whether or not uh, the property owner gets reimbursed their reasonable expert costs and attorney's fees. And so uh, we had made a, a 30 day offer um, that they would have to beat by 10% and they just barely, actually they didn't even beat that. So uh, it was a good result. Um, you know, it, it cost them more to go to trial than they could have got well before trial. Uh, that Matt, that's not a good result. Having done what you, what you do number of times, that's a great result. That is a congratulations. congratulations. Kudos guys. So we're going to take a little break and hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. The Pendulum Land Podcast is very proud to include the law firm of Miller, Nash, Graham, and Dunn as one of its best supporters. In fact, this episode of the Pendulum Land Podcast was made possible by that law firm. Miller Nash is based in Seattle with offices in Portland, Long Beach, and Vancouver. Though its attorneys are diverse in their background and their fields of expertise, Every one of them that I've come to know over the years has one thing in common. They're great lawyers, and they give great representation. Now, those of us in the right-of-way industry can tell the difference between an attorney that dabbles in eminent domain and right-of-way and one who masters the process. Miller Nash eminent domain attorneys don't dabble in right-of-way. They make it their objective to understand the industry, to understand the issues, and protect their clients' interests. Our guest, Matt Hansen today is the leader of their condemnation and real estate valuation team. You'll see Matt, you'll see Tara, and you'll see other Miller Nash attorneys at the ALICLE National Eminent Domain Conference. You'll see Matt and his partners at the International Right-of-Way Association's International Conference. And you'll see Miller Nash attorneys at right-of-way conferences and symposiums all over the place. If you have a right-of-way project in the Pacific Northwest and you need outstanding, experienced legal representation in the field, Give Matt and give Tara and give Miller Nash a call. They're the real deal in our industry. If you need local counsel in their area, in their footprint, give them a call. Or if, like me, you don't want to take a chance with your client's case in your first virtual trial, consider associating Matt and Tara. Check them out at MillerNash.com. MillerNash.com. Hey, before we move into the next part, um, how about another piece of Pearl Jam trivia? Yes. Yes. Okay, are you ready? Are you guys ready? Are you excited? I'm sure we're gonna get it absolutely all right, all right. immediately. Any true Pearl Jam fan will know the answer to this question. What is Eddie Vedder's birth name? Here's a hint, it's not Eddie Vedder. No idea. You guys what? are killing me. I don't know. Well, what's up? What? You can at least guess. Yeah, come on, give us a guess. Josh. <laughs> what's the last name? Smith. Yeah. Josh Smith. We got a Josh Josh Jones. Well, I know a Josh Jones. Yeah, no. That's not it. That's not it. Dave, what is it? Edward Lewis Severson III. I can't Boom. believe you guys didn't know I, that. This is frankly kind of embarrassing. Okay, so let's get on to the second one. And you had a second jury trial. 
I understand, which was conducted completely via Zoom. And I got to tell you guys, that blows my mind. I can't even ima- I can't even conduct a meeting via Zoom, which I've demonstrated today with this recording of this podcast episode <laughs> with you guys. So, so um, I'm going to ask you this, and only tell me if you're comfortable. How much money was at stake for the Zoom jury trial? Well, the uh, in that case, it involved a lot of parties, pretty big project, and uh, I think there was 28 owners as part of the trial, and so their their collective just compensation claim was five and a half million dollars plus their fees, probably about a million and a half. Dang. And our evidence was that the valuation was actually zero dollars and but for the uh, agency's minimum just compensation policy of a thousand dollars so we put on evidence of a thousand dollars per owner for 28 owners okay basically thirty thousand dollars to five and a half million plus 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 attorney's fees plus fees of a million and a half plus is what i think you would estimate. Yeah, the, the case went on for about almost six years. Almost five, six years. Five, six years. Oh my several gosh. Appeals, uh, you know, that were discretionary that were denied, but there was a lot of parties, lots of moving pieces, and that that was the how many re- respondents were left for trial. Uh, the case started out with close to two hundred parties uh, in two hundred different uh, single family homes. Oh, okay. At one point, a ten million dollar case. That oh was the claim, anyway. Of course. It was zero all along um, from our perspective. So by the time you got to trial, there was a, over $7 million in controversy between the claim and attorney's fees. Is that correct? Yeah, yes. about that. Okay. And I'm just going to take a wild guess here, and I'm going to just say I bet you'd never conducted a jury trial via Zoom before, had you? Um, no. No, <laughs> no we, we pressure. A- we conducted a partial one, you know, because we did the voir dire uh, or the jury selection process in the earlier trial uh, remotely. So, and we worked with witnesses remotely. So, making the the shift to a full all Zoom trial was was a shift, but it wasn't brand new territory. Well, I, I'm. Gonna... But like like most people, a year ago, we didn't know what Zoom was. Exactly. That's right. my point, Tara. Is that you're playing with over seven million dollars of somebody else's money? And you're having to figure it out as you go along. This makes me want to vomit. I'm not same, kidding. Same, same. <laughs> we we had really dedicated staff and really dedicated firm that has been focused this last year on making sure that we have the training and the tools to do it successfully. And we spent some time practicing to make sure that we could do it. But Ultimately, there are technology glitches, but there's glitches in every trial. I yeah, mean, that's just part of trial. Tara, that is a big question I have. Is I mean, we've all we all know about a Zoom meeting now. I mean, it's a big part of our everyday life as professionals. But I don't know if I ever get on a Zoom meeting, even with just my partners, when there's a, like two or three of us on the phone call, that somebody doesn't have a technical issue or the Wi-Fi drops, or they have to log in and log out, or a dog is barking. Did you guys have just like significant delays because? a juror lost their feed or whatever was going on with their Wi-Fi? It was an issue. We had one juror um, that was using her phone as her primary uh, computer for, for purposes of observing the trial. Well, we had a big storm that came through uh, towards the end of trial, and this was after having spent weeks uh, in this, this Zoom trial. And it wasn't because it was a Zoom trial that it took weeks. It's just that the sheer volume of witnesses uh, and valuation opinions in the case. And so 
after this significant investment by this juror, we had this power outage. And so she had to use her phone to dial in, but she didn't have a full battery. There was no way to recharge a battery and we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, and we were really concerned about losing her given how much time and, and energy she had put into being there. So uh, we donated to the court a uh, portable charger pack, which the court then messenger to the juror's home so that she could charge her phone and stay there. So that's kind of how you just have to adapt to make these things work. Well, that's one good thing about COVID. I think we've all learned to adapt. That's for sure. What about like the people that are normally in the courtroom for a Zoom trial, like the the bailiff and the court reporter? Where are they? What are they doing? Are they in a courtroom? Are they at their houses? Are they laying in their bed with their arm behind their head? Like what's going on with those guys? The court staff was actually at the court. The court is open. And so the judge was the only person in the trial who was on video and wearing masks. And, and the bailiff and the clerk were in the courthouse and they also were wearing masks and on the Zoom. But we think that it's going towards a position where if things get worse again, that those folks could also be at home and on their own Zoom. Wow. And I, I think we're already seeing that in part or, you know, for some of the bench trials where judges are choosing to uh, preside from home. Um, but I think, you know, that's just the room. I don't know if the facts are true, but that's what I hear that, you know, that things are leaning potentially if it got that bad, but hopefully and, things are getting better. And, and w- so where were you guys every day of trial? Were you at your ho- houses or were you at the office at, at um, your firm or so, where'd you go? Yeah, so, so Tara and I have been, you know, back to back jury trials since June. Uh, so we're pretty much our own uh, pod, you know, for, for lack of a better uh, term. And so we would come together, we would work in a conference room where we knew that we wouldn't have connectivity issues, that we could share real-time information without having to have yet another screen in front of me to read messages on one side or, you know, it's just, you know, there's a lot of nerves that are going on. There's ability to talk at the breaks. And, you know, that's the kind of stuff where I think as counsel, um, if you're comfortable, you can do it. Now we've we've had other trials, bench trial that was uh, that was remote um, with a couple of our partners, and and they found that 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 they were all at their homes. They did not come into the office. Yeah, we made okay. the decision to come to our office. They tried it from home, but actually, our paralegal, the entirety of the case, she was at her home, and she did not come into the office at all. So really, it was just a personal decision, a strategic decision on our part to come into the office and make one of our conference rooms the courtroom. Wow. Which, which was weird. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. And so, whew, I'm not sure whether you can answer this, but I'm thinking, I'm thinking if I'm your client and maybe it's somebody you'd represented for a long time and they have a lot of confidence in you, but I'm thinking if I'm the client, I'm not wanting to be the guinea pig here, Right. I'm not really wanting to put my money on the line and say, hey, this is Matt and Tara's first full Zoom trial. Let's risk $7 million. How did that go? Well, you you have lots of ways to think about it. Uh, Depending on the client, depending on how often they find themselves in these um, condemnation trials or evaluation issues, they have to move them forward. There's there's delay impacts. There's, uh, you know, construction needs to go. Government's you know, pumping lots of money into infrastructure and can't just stop 
you know, uh, because you can't acquire the property. So uh, in part, we kind of had to move forward in order to secure the rights uh, and make sure that the owners got compensated fairly. And so I think it's just a, it's, it's a balance and you have to choose which ones make sense. And this is one where they didn't really have a choice. They had to move forward. Do you, do you have more trials scheduled on the Zoom? Uh, we have we have lots of trials scheduled. Uh, we have lots of uh, moving pieces. We have lots of, uh, thankfully, we have lots of work. And it, it's good because uh, life moves on and so does the practice of law. You guys are just kind of trailblazers here. I mean, this is, I haven't heard of this anywhere, anywhere. And you guys are the first people that we've talked to that have, have done this. I mean, this seems like, are you, I think you guys are the experts on the zoom well, trial <laughs> I, and, and you know it it worked it worked we we felt confident in the process um but i think that it's definitely a question for each trial and each client and there may be you know facts or circumstances that would uh, lead to us recommending not going forward with the zoom trial but ultimately you know, there were some there were some aspects of the trial that are actually better than in-person trial. I mean, the the ability to see a juror's reaction on Zoom uh, was unparalleled to any in-person experience that I've had with a jury. Yeah, okay, explain that. Explain explain you what you mean by that. Yeah, I mean, you just you learn so much. I mean, as we talked earlier, you know, ninety percent of the way we communicate as humans is based on your body language and, and expressions and things that are nonverbal. And so, you know, in the context of a Zoom trial where you have, you know, the Brady Bunch screen up on your computer with all the jurors in one location, along with the witness, the court, and maybe opposing counsel, you can see a lot. You can, as you're presenting evidence, as you're asking questions of witnesses, you can see how the jury's reacting. Are they saying, move on, we get this? Or are they saying, oh, do tell, tell me more, this is good. This is just completely fascinating to me, but did you, did this change the way that you prepared? For instance, like when you are meeting with your witness and preparing your witnesses, are they coming to the office as normal or did you practice in a different way? Like how, how did that work? Uh, we did not have any witness come to the office. We did it all over Zoom and uh, Teams. We wanted to try and emulate what it was going to be like in front of the jury as much as possible so that we worked out the technology glitches with them in advance and uh, how we did exhibits and you know the whole the whole foundational issues and evidentiary issues with a Zoom trial are a little bit different, but I, I think the result was good. I mean, the, the jurors could see the exhibits. We sh it was a shared screen and we allowed some of our witnesses to actually take control of the exhibits and they could mark on them just like you would, you know, standing up in front of a whiteboard or a piece of butcher paper and marking up exhibits. They did that on Zoom, sharing the document. Amazing. Okay, so um, how did you handle objections? You know, if you're in person, you say, Your Honor, I object, and the other side can stand up and say something or not say yeah, something. Yeah. What, what, was all counsel unmuted at all times so that they could interpose objections? Now, during the breaks or during the, the conversations with the court outside the presence of the jury, you know, all the counsel were off mute. But, well, take that back. 
one one of us would be in charge of whatever was going on with respect to that break. And the same thing with with objections. To the extent that it was Tara's witness, I would go on mute uh, and go off video, uh, so it freed up more space. Um, and Tara would be off mute so she could make the objection. And, and one of the things that we would work with, which this kind of relates back to the witness prep, is you know it's hard when three people are talking and maybe opposing counsel is talking over your witness or trying to stop the conversation and you want to object. Now you got three people talking on the screen at the same time and the judge is trying to understand it all. And so I learned over time to start signaling my objections where I would normally stand in the courtroom. I can't really do that on zoom. It looks pretty awkward. Um, but <laughs> let me you know, try right so, now. <laughs> so, so what you I'm do not wearing is pants. I started, I started raising my hand, you know, with my finger up in front of my face on the screen, the judge could see it, my witness could see it, and people would stop talking, then I would get my objection in, and then of course Matt, it would be sustained. We we deal with that all the time on Zoom calls, and I, I'm on a, a committee, and we've kind of established this thing, like I cross my fingers and hold them up, and, and I've my whole committee does this. Like, if you have something to say, like this basically, if you cross your fingers and hold them up, that means I'm next, I got something to say, instead of being like four people talking over each other. And you know what? For a podcast, it doesn't really work well with four people if we're all talking over each other. It's it's tricky. I just saw you do that, and I wondered, is that like their well, signal? I thought that, that too. I was, I was watching you two do this, and you kept doing the cross your fingers in front of Dave. I'm like, what, am I running long? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's like oh this guy. That's what this means. It means oh man, rambling on. That, He's rambling. Uh, that means Dave, shut up. It I'm means talking. Dave, well, shut you up. Know, in in honesty, the same thing during your direct with your witness. When it's your witness and you're controlling them, and you know sometimes it, it, there's rumors out there that expert experts can be long winded and they just go and go <laughs> and go. It's hard to butt into that conversation over Zoom, and so you start you know just nonverbal signals by raising your hand. Clearly, I have another question. Wrap it up. It's the signal you're giving them by by showing that on the screen. So that's a that's a yet another um, type of preparation for your witnesses. Is you you know you already go through your standard preparation when they're going to testify, and then if they're going to be on Zoom, you got to work out some hand gestures and signals. And is that really is that really allowed? And is the judge going to be okay with it? But just a but different ballgame. It would be no different in court. I mean, to the extent that the witness is on the stand and I'm asking questions and I want to interrupt because I want to ask another question, you raise your hand in court, you can move closer to the witness, you can do certain things that just normally signal to anybody when you're having a conversation that wraps up, like you raising your two fingers. It's well, saying, I'm, I'm, I'm rambling again. No, you're not I mean, rambling. And, I'm, I'm just thinking that, that like you have developed a brand new algorithm for courtroom testimony. Oh, hold on, hold on. Here we go. What? You're using those big words again. Do you yeah. even know what algorithm means? Yeah, you know, like a formula, like a formula, an Dave. algorithm. Oh, God. I'm so tired of having to explain big words to you. Okay. That is not correct. I'll give you the true definition of an algorithm. Okay. So we talked about Pearl Jam and how they've had like five different drummers, right? So this is an algorithm. So like when Jack Irons left Pearl Jam, and they're like, oh my gosh, we need a drummer. What are we going to do? They talked to Matt Cameron, who was the drummer for Soundgarden. And Matt comes in and he's like, guys, don't, don't stress. Algorithm. Get it? Because he's going to play the drums. So they're drummers? Yeah. yeah. It's what you say when you join a band and you're going to play the drums. You say algorithm. I've been using this word incorrectly yeah. all these years. Yes. But you're welcome. Okay. Happy to help. Well, we can I move on. certainly feel stupider again. Every time, every episode we ever record, I realize that I 
was lucky to get a 400 on the verbal SAT. You really were. And I'm really, I'm just happy to help. I'm happy to help. It's weird that you're an attorney though. And you don't know these words. I know. I know. I know. So Matt and Tara, did you have any, uh, for lack of a better description, snafus or problems which occurred because of going on zoom live mics, anything like that? I'm sure that Tara would be happy to spin it. Um, but yeah, there was one, there was one example, you know, and, and everybody had done it at least once or twice. I and mean, jurors had not the jurors, but like witnesses, maybe leave a, a mic hot, you know, going into a break and then coming back and then they're talking on the phone and, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, but you know, there was one where we have to switch mute off and on between our laptops when we're working in the same room. And so we're just playing out of one speaker. And so I was apparently in charge of the, the muting at the, the conclusion of the evidence going into the break. And what I thought was muted was not muted. And luckily the jury was gone. The jury was gone. The opposing counsel was not so fortunate on during their snafu, but well, just to finish it up, the, uh, we got a ruling from the court we thought was just a little strange and, and, and counterintuitive and and we were just feeling our oats at the time we were just come off a really good uh you know cross-examination and we're going into the break to think around you we're like what the blank judge i can't believe you said that <laughs> oh, you know? and of course we're we're hot <laughs> oh, no. and, and and we don't know it and so we continue to have a conversation for you know good 60 seconds and oh, then we can gosh. hear come through the speaker the court staff saying uh counsel uh you're not on mute hello uh, you know what then, those oops. are words you don't want to hear yeah well uh, the jury had uh heard some sidebar from opposing counsel that they disclosed to us in uh, in closing argument which was kind of a funny story too tara uh, yeah. tara spit it spit it tara opposing counsel unfortunately two of them one opposing counsel to the other after cross-examination says hey after this is all over you want to take tara and matt out for a drink and the other one says "Ugh, no, no. <laughs> and then oh, no. Heard it, and it came up in the interview after oh no well you know what after this amazing podcast we will take you guys out for a drink well hold on a minute it came, you say it came up in the interview after you mean a jury interview they the jury mentioned it afterwards yeah, yeah. we ha we had an hour and a half long uh jurors wanted to talk they were wanted to talk about the process and um they gave us some really good feedback they gave feedback to the court they seemed really happy with the process and, and did they mention the mistake by opposing counsel Oh, it, explicitly, because opposing counsel made a reference to getting a drink with us. And then one of them said, yeah, we heard you say you didn't want to get a drink with <laughs> oh them during oh, the trial. Counsel, Oops. yeah, it was, it, was, it was awkward because in this post-verdict uh, interview with the jury, we were doing it with counsel at the same time. And so, you know, the you could tell the moods were a little bit different depending on whose camp you were in. And so a lot of the, the, the jury discussion kind of followed who they wanted to follow. So it sounds to me, and I'm, I'm not kidding, I don't know anybody else other than criminal attorneys who are trying cases right now. And I've had 20 cases continued, and we've got, you know, we've got a big project we've been working on for years, and the trials keep getting continued. And then we have another project after that, which we're now setting for trial and we're setting trial. We're continuing trials into 2023 right now. Like 
they're just not hearing our cases. So I'm wondering, I'm thinking the rest of the country has a lot to learn from you guys, and probably attorneys around the country don't need to reinvent the wheel. They could call you up, right? You, you go sure. pro hoc vice, wouldn't you? Sure, sure. Uh, consult while well, we can do it remotely, so that'd be a lot more cost effective. The reality is I think that, that things are here to change. And, you know, although I can see that there's some resistance to this concept of, you know, if I'm a property owner, I want a jury presence or, or vice versa to the government or whoever whoever it is. And, and I think the reality is that I don't think it makes a difference. And, and courts can say, hey, if you guys want to get this case out, then you guys have to agree to do this remote. And to the extent you don't agree, then you're to the back of the line again. I'm, I'm sure there are litigants out there that would like to have their issues resolved and can do so. It's a different, it's just a different atmosphere, but it's still the same process. It's still the same fairness, et cetera. Yeah, I, I still can't get my head around um, all the logistics of this. I really can't, especially with so much money on the line. So do you want to reveal to everybody what the result of the case was? Sure. Uh, you know, it was it was a good outcome uh, or a great outcome based on your definition. Um, and as you recall, it was uh, five point five million in, in total comp being claimed. And we were saying twenty eight thousand or a thousand dollars per per unit per owner. Um, and the verdict uh, came back unanimous within a couple hours uh, in favor of petitioner's verdict. So a thousand dollars per unit. Uh, to each with no rights or entitlement to attorney fees. So let me get this right. You guys were pioneers in this whole idea of having a trial via Zoom, and you won, and you're two for two on your COVID jury trials? Right. So far. Dude, these oh guys are God. rock stars. No kidding, and I can't think of a better way to wrap up the episode. Matt, Tara, thank you both for joining us. Thank you for having us. This Thanks is fun. Please, please listen to some Pearl Jam. Before we see you again, mm, please. please. Yeah, use it as your it, intro music. It's my homework now that I'm out of trial. Matt, we can't, we time. can't, we can't afford Pearl Jam music on this podcast. Yeah, we can't. They don't sell. No, they don't sell cheaply. They don't sell. Just sing it, dude. You got it. I do. I sing a lot like Eddie Vedder. He I does mean, not. Thanks, you guys, and kudos right, on dude. some amazing stuff that you've been working on and and the results of those trials. You guys are awesome. Hi, this is Laura Gunter with Percheron, and you've been listening and laughing to the Pendulum Land podcast. I know that you want to stay in the know, so like and follow the podcast on LinkedIn, my fave, Twitter, and Facebook, used by folks that remember Toto's version of Africa. The podcast handle is at Pendulum Land Pod. Dave. You go guitar, I'll go rhythm. <laughs> <laughs>